Good morning. Glad to be here. Who's glad to be here today? Amen. I'm excited to be here, excited to share with you what God's laid on my heart this week. Uh, I think this week God's really impressed on me to, to talk to you today about drawing close to God, drawing near to God. And so our main verse today is, is James chapter 4, verse 8. And our main passages, we're eventually going to read it in context. So James chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And also, we're going to, our other main text today is going to be Genesis chapter 45 and verses 1 through 11. So if you want to mark those two down. But James chapter 4, verse 8 really is the, the verse, and you've probably read this before. This is not the entire verse. We'll look at the whole verse later. But it says, draw near to God... And he'll do what? He'll run away from you. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So within this verse, there's, there's a command. This is in the imperative tense. It says, draw near to God. But then we also have a promise that when you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And there's a lot of ways to draw near to God. I'm not going to talk about ways to draw near to God today, because it's, I think drawing near to God can be different for each person. For me personally, I draw near to God through God's word. That is not the only way, but it's the predominant way that I draw near to God. As I'm in God's word, as I'm studying God's word, as I'm meditating on God's word, I begin to hear God's voice. He begins to speak to me. I begin to ask him questions, and, and we dialogue. But you can draw near to God through prayer. You can draw near to God through worship. You can draw near to God through congregating and associating with other believers that, that love God. And, and so my message today is not to talk to you about how to do it. There's many ways to draw near to God. But I want to focus on this, that the promise is when you draw near to God, the promise is that he will draw near to you. And I, I think if I want to drive one thing home today, it's this, is that the key, you might want to write this down, the key to drawing near to God is understanding his love for you. So the way that you get there, there's many ways to draw near to God. I don't know that there's a right or wrong way, but I think the key the, the crux of drawing near to God is found in understanding his unconditional love for you. If you think about, now drawing near to God is not talking about physically drawing near. As much as I love to draw near to my wife, we're not talking about physically drawing near to God. But if you think about in the New Testament, of all the people in the New Testament, who physically drew closest to Jesus? I want to say it was the Apostle John. If you think about, when we think about the disciples, how many disciples were there? Quick test. Wrong. 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 Luke, somebody said, just give us the right answer. Luke chapter 9, it says, Jesus commissioned and appointed the twelve, sent them out to preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 10, it says he commissioned another 70, or some translations say another 72, and sent them out two by two. So there were at least 82 or 84 active disciples. So 
just a little tidbit there. there. There was more than 12. Now there are 12, the core apostles. But you know what happened? A lot of times as Jesus taught, people didn't understand things. And if you read in John chapter 6, Jesus starts telling this story, or talking, he says, hey, the way that the Israelites received manna in the wilderness and bread from heaven, I'm the true bread from heaven. And unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have no part in me. And it says a lot of people said uh, toward the end of Genesis, or why do I keep saying Genesis, John chapter 6, they said, this is a hard saying and who can understand it? And Jesus says, are you going to be offended by this? And, And what it says a few verses later, it says, many of his disciples left him and followed him no more. And he turns to the 12 and he said, you guys going to leave too. Peter says, Rabbi, you have the words of life. Where else are we going to go? And that sometimes not understanding God's word can create an offense in your life that will push you away from him. But if you understand that there's actually life in the word that you don't even understand. And that sometimes staying close to God, even when you don't understand what's going on, is the very place that you need to be, even when you don't grasp it yet. Peter says, I don't know. Where else are we going to go? You hold the words to eternal life. So we have this big broad stroke of 80-some disciples. We have the, the 12, right? And then we have the 12 that we always talk about. And then within the 12, there was like the inner circle made up of whom? Peter, James, and John, right? So you remember when Jesus went to the Mount of Transfiguration, who did he take with him? He took his inner circle with him, Peter, James, and John. And you see these three really are kind of like his his inner circle. But then there's only one disciple, John, that said he leaned on Jesus' breast and laid his head on his chest at the Last Supper. And I think the difference, if you you look through the, the Gospel of John, At the Last Supper, on Crucifixion Day, on Resurrection Day, and then also on the day that Jesus restored Peter four times, John records this. He says, he records himself as the disciple that loved Jesus. He said, he referred to himself as, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. And when you understand that it's God's love for you, not about your love for him, but it's about, in the new covenant, it's about his love for you, you get that revelation, and you can start to draw a lot closer than you ever did before. And I think John had that revelation. He was the only one that laid his head on Jesus' breast, at least the only one recorded. You know, a lot of times we hear, and you think of, uh, John also wrote the book of Revelation. And when we read Revelation... Uh, in chapter 2, the, he addresses seven churches. It's you know, the vision of Jesus. He's addressing these seven churches. He says to the church of Ephesus, he says this. He says, I know your works. I know your labor. I know your patience. I know your hatred of those that do evil. Uh, I even know that you called out false, false apostles as liars. Nevertheless, this one thing I have against you. You have left your first love. And a lot of times I hear that preached that it's just like when I first met Kristen. Boy, I had a love for my wife. And that initially it was this hot, burning, passionate love. Actually, my dad said, I never fell into love. I fell into lust first. And then I grew in love. That's what, at least what he used to tell me. But when, when John's 
addressing the church at Ephesus, he says, you have left your first love. And, and, I, and I understand how we could have been passionate for Jesus at one point in our life, and now we're not. But who loved first? Did we love him first, or did he love us first? So John, also the apostle of love, writes this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. He says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. Those who fear have not been perfected in love. Verse 19 says this, we love him because he first loved us. And so I want to suggest to you that if you've left your first love, it's that you've forgotten that Jesus loved you first. It's that you've forgotten that he gave everything to love you first. Paul says in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That he demonstrated his love to us in this way, that while we were sinners, when we were ungodly, when we had nothing to offer, he came and died for you. And so the, the, I really believe the key to drawing closer to God is really having a better revelation, a greater revelation of understanding his complete and utter love for you. So when we talk about drawing close to God, positionally, you cannot get any closer to God than you already are if you're saved, right? Because when you accept Jesus, I've spent the last umpteen years preaching that you are in Christ. You're a new creation. How can you get any closer to God than being in Christ? So positionally, you've already drawn near. But practically speaking, there's a lot of believers that live in a place of being far away from God. See, our mission here is to reach the one that's far from God and help them become a passionate follower of Jesus. So a lot of times when you think about the person far from God, we think about the person that's not saved the person that hasn't made Jesus the Lord of your life. But I want to propose to you that there's a lot of believers that are in Christ that are also living far from God. So, in us reaching the one that's far from God, it's just not about reaching the unsafe person that doesn't know Jesus and hasn't made him Lord of her life. It's also about reaching the believer that's positionally in Christ, near to God, but living far from him. See, it's, it's like marriage. See, what happens is positionally, I can be in Christ. My born-again spirit is one with his spirit. He lives in me. But the way that I think, the way that I feel, and the way that I act, my thoughts are far from God. My feelings are far from God. My actions kind of exhibit my thoughts and feelings, and they're also far from God. See, just because I'm married, do you know I get up sometimes and I don't feel married? Especially yesterday when my, my wife won an argument. <laughs> no, I don't know, dude, I think you won an argument yesterday. Yeah, you did. Or I just gave up. I, I, just, I, I just learned to say I quit, Now I don't even argue. She says that's a lie. That's a lie. Even though I'm married, even though I have a marriage certificate, even though I have a wedding ring, there's days that I get up and I don't think like a married man. 
There's days that I get out of bed and I don't feel like a married man. There's certainly days that I get up and I don't act like a married man. And I don't mean that I'm doing things bad, but when Jesus says that husbands love your wives the way that Christ loved the church, anything less than that, I'm not living the way I should be living. And so my thoughts, my feelings, my actions don't always line up with the reality that I am married. So feelings are real, but they're not reliable. Where did your feelings come from? God, right? God created feelings. Feelings are real. They're real. You feel a certain way. Well, I don't want you to feel a certain type of way. Well, you, the reality is you do. Feelings are real, but they're not reliable. You can't base your life on the way that you feel. See, you can... The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. He says, Strong meat belongs to those who are mature, that by practice have exercised their senses to discern both good and evil. So it basically means this, that as you mature in the Lord, you can get to a place to where you practice and train your senses to be able to discern right and wrong. So I believe as you mature in the Lord, you can start to rely on your feelings to a certain degree because you've trained them in a certain way. But at the end of the day, if your feelings don't line up with God's word, God's word, it's like the trump card, you know? It's like the ace of spades. Or if you're playing jail rules, like the two. <laughs> Is it a two? Yes. A two. I always like telling that story. I don't know why. I'll just tell it anyway. First time I played spades at my house, we were playing with uh, Tanya. That's been four or five years ago. And I'm holding the ace of spades. And I'm just like, bam! And I go to grab it, and she lays a two. And I'm like, what are you doing? She goes, well, two trumps. I was like, no, it's called spades. She goes, well, no, jail rules. I was like, well, we're not in jail. We, we are at Fred's house. And Fred goes by bicycle.com, and we pulled, we pulled up the rules. And actually, the rules are that the two doesn't trump anything. Those are jail rules. But when your feelings are feeling like a two, play that ace of God's word. right? Because nothing beats God's word. It's right all the time. So I want to look at, um, let's go ahead and I guess let's look at James chapter 4. That would probably be a good place to start since that's where we're going. Oh, no, I want to show you this first, Ephesians 2. So in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 13, I just want you to see that positionally you are already near to God. So we're not trying to get near to God positionally. Ephesians 2, verse 11 says this, now, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. It's basically like if you're Jewish, you're, uncirc- you're circumcised. They called the Gentiles uncircumcised. He says, at that time, you were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, 
having no hope and without God in the world. So he says, before you accepted Jesus, you were strangers or you were foreigners to, to God's covenants that he made with Israel. You were, you were outside. You were separated from Christ. You were in the world, but you were without God. You were in the world, but you were without hope. And you had all those things going against you. But then in verse 12, he says, Remember that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. Verse 13. But now, everybody say, but now. Whereat in Christ, you were once far away, but now you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews says it like this. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19. It says, the law made nothing perfect. Remember, perfection is the only way to access the Father. You can't get there by good works. You can't get there by doing more good than bad. You can't even get there if you score a 99.9% because his standard is perfection. The law could never do that. It says the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a bringing in of a better hope did through which we draw near to God. And so that the only way to draw near to God is through the blood of Jesus. That any other way, you'll never get there. So positionally, you come to Christ through Jesus' blood. It says there's one man, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so positionally, let's go to the next slide. We have already been brought near to God, but practically many Christians live far from God in their thoughts, feelings, and actions. Okay, I think I already said that. Let's go to James chapter 4. James says this, where do wars and fights come from among you? Anybody having any quarrels in their life right now? Any battles in your life right now? Now, the word war can mean like nation going against nation, but it also can mean just a a strife. It can mean a battle. It can mean contention. It can mean a quarrel. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? So he kind of says, hey, the thing you're going through in your life right now that's bad, you're kind of the source of it. You know, what do we want to do all the time? We want to we play Adam, right? The woman that you gave me. The serpent that came in the garden deceived me. See, a lot of times when we, we experience things in our life, even bad things, we incorrectly think that God is putting out his wrath on us. And so I'll just talk a minute about the wrath of God while, while that came up. Because in the Old Covenant, we see the wrath of God displayed where he actually like wiped out. Uh, if you think about when, when Korah uh, rose up against Moses and Aaron, it said the earth opened up, 250 people just swallowed him up. And, and then, the, then I think there was like, I don't know, ten or 15,000 more that got wiped out with a plague because they were mad because the 250 got swallowed up. Or, or maybe the prophets of Baal that, you know, got froze, you know, fired, you know, seared, what did they get? They got seared, I guess. <laughs> Fire from heaven. Uh, or they slaughtered them. Uh, so we see in the Old Testament all this wrath of God being poured out. 
Now, the wrath of God is in the New Testament, but a little bit different. If you read in the, in the first chapter of Romans, it says that the, the wrath of God has been displayed. Well, I, I look at it more like this. In the Old Testament, it was the active wrath of God. In the New Testament, it's more the passive wrath of God. If you read Romans chapter 1, it talks about all kinds of horrible things people did. I'm not going to read them, but three times in verses 24, 26, and 28, it says, God gave them over to their evil desires. God gave them over to their evil passions. God gave them over to a debased mind. So what God says in the New Testament is, hey, I've paid for everything. You don't want it my way? Okay. I'll just let you deal with the repercussions of your own actions. I'll let you deal with the consequences of the lifestyle that you want to live, and I'm going to give you over to the thing that you want to do. And so a lot of times when we want to blame people for the battles and the struggles that are going on in our life, you need to look in the mirror. Because most of the time, not all the time, but there's still the the attack of the enemy and there's other things, but most of the time a lot of the negative things that we're dealing with in our life are brought on by the choices, decisions, thoughts, feelings, actions that that we've made. Verse 2 says, You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and could not obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. So he says, you're, you're wanting things, and you're doing all kinds of stuff to get them. He says, you murder and covet, but you can't obtain. So you're, you're wanting something somebody else has. You're doing whatever you can do to go get it. Uh, and then when that doesn't work, oh, you know what? Maybe I'll ask God. Imagine that. He says, but you ask, and you do not have. And the next verse says this, verse 3, you ask amiss and do not receive because you, uh, that you may spend it on your lust, your pleasure. So the reason you're asking, what he's saying is you're asking, but you're asking with the wrong motivation, you have the wrong motive. You're asking, so you, I want something so I can have it for my own pleasures. Now verse 4 is where it really gets good. Now here's the thing, this is kind of like a poop-filled Twinkie, okay? I'm just going to say it's not all bad here. So there's some good coming. This is the bad part first. Did I just, I did just say that, didn't I? Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? That word means hostility. Enmity with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, that's the bad news, right? I think at any given time, some, all of us could put ourselves in, in, in one of those areas. We, we've done things. We've walked away from God. We've lived a certain way. We've done certain things. We've, we've tried to get things that we, we don't really need, and we've done underhanded things. We've schemed and, and, and cheated and done things to get them. And he says, you've gone out. You've literally lived in the world, became a friend of the world, and he calls you an adulterer and adulteress, that you're actually committing spiritual adultery on Jesus, the one that you're married to. He says, you want to be a friend of the world? You're actually making yourself an enemy of God. Now, here's the good news, verse 5. Do you think the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in you, us yearns jealously? That's the positional truth. While you're living in your mess, 
if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, while you're committing spiritual adultery, while you're living and cheating and scheming and, and deceiving, it says, do you think the Scripture says in vain that the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Another translation, do you think God doesn't jealously yearn for the Spirit that dwells in you? So here's what he's saying. He says, while you're out there living far from God, God's still near. God is still in you. He said, do you think the scripture says in vain that the spirit who dwells in you? And so what God is doing, he said, think of what can separate, Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? So think about God. His Holy Spirit is in you while you're in bed with somebody else. And it says that God yearns jealously for the spirit that's in you, his spirit that's also him. And he's saying, I see the situation you're in. I see the, 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 the life that you're living, and my spirit is in you, and I desire not only for you to be near positionally, but for you to be near me practically. And he says, I desire that. I yearn jealously to have you back close to me. He says, therefore, he said, God, re but God, oh, isn't the verse six good? But God does what? He gives, what's the apostle Paul say in Romans chapter five, verse 20? He said, when sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And then Paul goes on, of course, the first part of chapter six and says, should we sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. But the truth is, you can't out sin the grace of God. No matter how much sin you've done, there's more grace. Now, how much sin is abounding in your life, there's more grace. But God doesn't go out and haul you in by the back of the shirt. He doesn't come up and say, Nate, come on, I'm giving you grace. <laughs> there's grace, and he gives it, and it's free. But he gives grace to who? The humble. And as long as you stay out there living your certain way, doing your certain thing, thinking you got it all figured out, you've removed yourself from the place of being able to receive what he's provided. It says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so what he's saying, he says, if you want to receive the grace of God, there's more available than you've ever sinned. But you've got to submit yourself to him. You have to yield yourself to him. You have to come close to him. And he pours it out on you. See, what a lot of people try to do, they try to resist the devil while they're also resisting God at the same time. See, I'm resisting God. Oh, I'm fighting the devil. I'm fighting the devil. Well, first thing you need to do is submit to God. So you can't resist God and resist the devil at the same time. It's not going to work. You're, if, if you're submitting to the devil, you're resisting to God. And when you submit to God and you come under his authority, you can effectively resist the devil. And he'll leave. 
Verse 8 says, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, a lot of times what we want to do, I, I think it's interesting, it doesn't say, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. See, a lot of times we want to put, we want to reverse this verse and tell people, get yourself cleaned up, get your heart right, get your, get, wash your hands, get the filth off of you, and then draw near to God. This says, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you, and in the midst of that relationship and that intimacy, he'll begin to clean you up. So you're never going to do it apart from Him. You have to come into His presence and into nearness to Him in order for His Holy Spirit to begin to work in your life. And so what a lot of us like to do is we take half of that. See, it says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and what? And purify your hearts. Oh, I think what I'll do, I'll just take a bath, so to speak, so I look clean on the outside. I get so sick of people living in sin saying, oh, brother, let me tell you about how good the Lord is. Let me t-. I get it. He is good. Why do you think Jesus said to the Pharisees, he says, you hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied about you. He said, this people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that's a place a lot of Christians live. Well, I don't want to completely submit to God, so I'll just, I'll just release it from my mouth, but I'm still going to, in here, I'm still going to do what I want to do. Don't talk to me about how God has done this and God has done that when you're out living a certain way. Let me see a life of consistency. Let me see a life of integrity. Let me see some, some, some time pass between you doing this and not doing this. And then you have a platform to tell people about how God can change your life. It says, cleanse your hands, external. Purify your hearts, internal. See, it's not one or the other. He says, stop doing what you're doing, but get your heart right. Submit to God. Surrender to God. Come close to God. It doesn't matter how dirty you are. It doesn't matter how wrong you are. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. Come close to God. When the prodigal son returned to the father, you heard Phil preach on this a few weeks ago, he still had pig poop all over him. How did the son come back? He came back naked. He came back broken. He came back hungry. He came back filthy. He came back smelly. He didn't get cleaned up before he came to the Father. It said he came to himself, and then he arose, and then he came to the Father. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 20. He arose 
and came to his father. But when he was a long way off, his father saw him. His father had compassion on him. His father ran to him. His father embraced him. And he drew him in. See, if you're far from God today, God wasn't the one that moved. God didn't go anywhere. If you're far from God, it's because you walked over here. He he didn't walk away from you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. If there's distance, you created it. He arose. He got up out of his stuff the way he was, filthy, smelly, dirty, broken. And he came to his father. And I've talked before, the father, it wasn't the son that cleaned himself up. What did the father do? He said, put the best robe on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put shoes on his feet. You think about the old covenant. Do you remember when Moses, do you remember when Moses saw the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3? He said, huh, there's a burning bush. I think I'll go check that thing out. And he walks over, and what's God say? Do not draw near. Take your shoes off, for the ground on which you stand is holy ground. Old covenant. Under the new covenant of grace, come here, son, let me put shoes on your feet. And you stand on the ground that I stand on. It's a new covenant. See, we can approach a holy God because Jesus has made us holy. We can approach a holy God because Jesus has made us righteous. You turn to him, he automatically is there waiting to pull you in. To put that robe of righteousness back on you. To put the ring of authority back on you. To put the shoes on your feet. Say, stand here with me, son. I got you covered. I just want you to see this picture of Joseph in Genesis 45. We'll close with this story. Because Joseph, really of all the Old Testament, you remember in the Old Testament there's all kinds of types and shadows and and pictures of Jesus. And, And although it's hidden, all these stories really are about Jesus. And Joseph, probably more than any character or, or person in the Old Testament, really represents Jesus in just a phenomenal way. And I'm not going to go into all, all those ways, but you know, Joseph was loved by his father. Joseph was hated by his brothers. Joseph was sold for silver. Joseph was stripped of his clothes. Joseph was put into a pit. It says Jesus went into hell or Hades. Joseph was brought out of a pit. Joseph was falsely accused. Joseph was tempted to do sin, but he didn't do sin. Joseph was elevated to the most powerful person in all of Egypt. And Joseph fed the entire world with bread. 
Sound like anybody you know? There's probably 150 or more of types and shadows of Joseph versus Jesus. But I want, you, I want to draw your, your attention to chapter 45. In chapter 45, this is the second time he appeared to his brothers. Now, his brothers represent Israel. The first time he appeared to Israel, oh, also Joseph married a Gentile bride. Guess what? Imagine that, the church. All of Israel will be saved. The first time Jesus appeared, Israel didn't recognize him. The second time he appears, they'll all recognize him. So this is his interaction with his brothers uh, the second time. And Genesis chapter 45 says this. If you remember, he didn't right away tell them who he was. Now, they had done all this bad stuff to him. They'd stripped him of his clothes. They sold him into slavery. They put him in a pit. They went back to the father and lied about that. Oh, an animal tore him to shreds, and here's his bloody shirt. And They did this man wrong. And now he's elevated second to only Pharaoh in Egypt at the time because of this famine. Now, Egypt is really controlling the commerce of the entire world. And he even says that I'm, I'm now a father to Pharaoh. And so here he's gone from being done really wrong to now he's in a position to where he can get right. But that's not what he does. It says, then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood with him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to the brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed (laughs) in his presence. You can imagine, this is the guy that they sold into slavery. They lied about. They threw him in a pit. They, they, They did him so wrong. And now they're standing in his presence trying to get bread. And he says, I'm Joseph. Is my dad still alive? And they couldn't answer. So they were dismayed. And Joseph said to his brethren, what's he say? Please come near me. Here's a man with all the power in the world that could execute judgment on these men. And he says, please He didn't even demand. He says, please, please come near me. And so they came near, and he said, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Verse 5, but now do not therefore be grieved or be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Imagine this. He's even encouraging them in the midst of them. He says, hey, don't beat yourself up. Don't feel sorry. Don't be angry at yourself. Don't be mad. You did it for a certain reason, but God actually sent me here for a different reason. He said, God sent me before you to preserve your life. These two years, the famine have been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be another plowing, neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth, to save your lives by now a great deliverance. So it was not for you. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. 
hurry, go tell my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. So verse 10. It says, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen. I put in here brackets. The name Goshen means drawing near. It's actually a play on words. You shall dwell in a place of drawing near. And see, what a lot of times we want to do is we want to visit a place of nearness with God. We want a vacation at a place of nearness with God. Oh, let me get on the God VRBO app and let me schedule, let, let, let me schedule a week during Christmas because that's when everybody gets real Christian-y. Let me vacation in his presence. And Joseph says this, hey, come near to me. Go get my father. Tell my father to come here. Tell him I'm, I've been made a father to Pharaoh, and I want you to dwell. I want you to remain in Goshen. And you shall be near me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all you have. Verse 11 says, And I will provide for you there, lest you and your household and all you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. Next slide. Joseph saying this to his brother, he says, I want you to dwell in a place of nearness. I want you to dwell in a place of nearness. And he says, when you do, then you'll be near to me. You, your children, your children's children, your flocks and herds, and what? All that you have. And so here's the invitation that Jesus is making. Because a lot of times, we not only want to just visit periodically instead of dwelling there, but what Jesus is saying is, I want you to bring all that you have and bring all that you have near to me. Not just you, but I want you to bring your family near to me. I want you to bring your job near to me. I want you to bring your profession near to me. I want you to bring your neighborhood near to me. I want you to bring your sons and daughters near to me. I want you to bring all the influence you have with certain people near to me. And he says, when you bring yourself near to me, there, in the place of being near to me, I will provide or sustain you. You can't do it out there. You can't do it out there. So let's go with that surrounded. Here's what James 4.8 says in the message translation. It says, say a quiet yes to God, and he'll be there in no time. Like that. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. 